Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. All right, back here on the Investor Coaching Show, Paul Winkler talking money and investing. So, um, been hanging on to this article for a couple weeks. Yeah, it's about a week or so. Uh, there, there was this article in The Economist, and it was Living to 120 was actually the magazine cover talking about that, Living to 120. And they're talking about a, there's a special report on how to slow aging. And, you know, there are a couple implications of this. It says, you know, want to live longer for centuries. The attempt to stop aging was the preserve of charlatans uh, touting the benefits of mercury and arsenic or <laughs> trying to use arsenic to live longer. I'm not sure how that works. Um, <laughs> doesn't seem like a, like a good plan. Uh, or assortments of herbs and, 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 and pills often with a disastrous effect, as you can imagine. Yet the... After years of false starts, the idea of genuine elixir to longevity is taking wing. Behind it is uh, they're, they just have a group of scientists and enthusiastic, self-interested billionaires. It just reminds me of Michael Jackson with cry cryogenics, right? You know, just freezing yourself and trying to increase your longevity. Um but anyway, living to 100 today is not unheard of. It's still rare. America, Britain, centenarians make up about 0.03% of the population. But interesting, you, you take somebody in their 60s, mid-60s, and you take a couple in their mid-60s, and one of them very likely will be alive into their 90s. You know, so that's, those are the numbers now. But anyway, it says that uh, should be the latest efforts to prolong life reach their potential. Living to see your 100th birthday could become the norm. Uh, making it to 120 could become perfectly reasonable aspiration. And so there are a lot of things going on right now in science. Uh, you know, they're talking about how to manipulate biological processes associated with aging. Uh and they have, you know, lab animals. They're doing all this kind of stuff on poor lab animals, right? Uh, talking about how to do that and how to have treatments for type 2 diabetes and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of different things. But, you know, I think the thing that hits me, that strikes me about all of this is that if you're looking at longevity, now, there's been a recent decrease in longevity, but a lot of it's due to the depression, anxiety. Uh, you know, there, there's been some of that. Uh, you know, COVID is some of that, but a lot of it has been depression, younger people. And, you know, that's been tragic, you know, really what has been happening in that particular area. But I think, you know, as older people, as we think about that living longer in different ways and different types of information, I mean, you look at the information explosion. I was actually watching a video on this. and It was just talking about how 
we have this great ability to communicate now and people are sharing more information and they're be able to stand on the jacks the, the backs of giants as they say you know the idea being that you look at the explosion in technology and new information it hasn't been because we're smarter it's it's that what we're able to do is communicate with each other more and then you take one person's innovation and put another person's innovation on top of that and you combine these things together and you have this explosion and it's been meteoric really but if we look at this in terms of what are we learning about genetic science and how are we going to be able to implement that to live longer what does that mean for the investor and i think that it means for the investor you know, as I was talking to somebody this week and we got into a conversation regarding fixed income investments. And I said, yeah, you know, if you took, let's say, you, you look back through history and you see the high correlation of fixed income investments like CDs and, and savings accounts and things like that. We were talking about, she was asking about how much to have in a high yield savings account versus investing and so on and so forth. And, and, um, you know, the client of, you know, it was actually saying, go talk to Paul, go talk to Paul about this. So, and we got into the conversation. I, I said, I don't know what to do right now as far as where to put it because I need to know what the financial plan is. I am not a ready, fire, aim kind of person. I want to know exactly when we're going to need this money. And that's what drives how you invest. When are we going to need the money? When are we going to be pulling income out? How much income are we going to be pulling out? What percentage of the portfolio? And if I need all of the money back inside of a calendar year, savings is where it ought to be. But if we have, let's say, three to five years, let's say, before I'm going to spend all of the money, well, I can put money historically in stocks, even going back to pre-depression and depression era, you know, when the markets were dropping, they dropped like 80%, you still would have been okay, even in the depression, with half stocks and half bonds. Uh, if we look back at history and say, well, what if I might need the money in, you know, let's say six to nine years, then I might hold somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% stocks, 25% bonds, if I diversify it really, really well. If, if it's 10 years from now, I'm going to spend all the money in exactly 10 years. Historically, I could have it all in equities going all the way back, even including the Great Depression. You know, so... You know, what mix of stocks versus bonds, number one, is driven by when am I going to be spending all of this money? Number two, it's also driven by, you know, let's say if I'm going to take an income, how much income am I going to take? What percentage of the portfolio income am I going to take? And you'll hear me say anywhere from half stocks to 75%, a lot of the research shows is the right asset mix for taking an income. Because now I'm balancing those two goals of inflation versus what happens if the stock market goes down. Now, this is really, really super key because if we're looking at living to 120, even 100, you might be looking at 30, 40 years, 50 years in retirement, making money last for that entire period of time. And if we look at what if 22 years ago, the example I was using for her, I had a million dollars in fixed, let's say all fell in fixed income investments, and I took out $40,000 and I increased it for inflation each year. At the end of 22 years, almost 23 years, how much money do I have? 
Nothing. I mean, literally, I, I would have depleted pretty much everything in that portfolio because I didn't have anything to protect against inflation. And we're talking about a period in time, period in history, where you have some pretty significant market volatility. I mean, good grief, 2000, 2001, 2002, you got 2008, you got, you know, some, some years, depending on the asset categories held in the mid-teen years, um, you got last year, you got, you had some pretty significant volatility over that period of time. And yet, if I had a little bit of both, I would have not have only been able to take that income, but I'd pretty much, you know, if I did this the way we always teach on this show here, I would have had more than what I had put in in the beginning. If I use 75% stocks, you know, you're, you're looking at well more than what I put in in the beginning and having been able to take over a million dollars of income, you know, just as an example. But what if I'm having to stretch this thing for 50 years? You know, and, and, there, and the thing is, is that you look at this and go, well, man, what is the dollar going to be worth? You know, what is the dollar going to purchase 10 years from year now, 20 years from now? Probably a fraction of what it purchases today. You know, I talk about quite often in the mid-1970s, when you wanted to buy a car, it was $3,000. That was it. You buy a car, $3,000, brand new. We're not talking used. We're talking a brand new vehicle. Uh, you look at a house, $30,000. That was it. You could buy a house, a brand new house, you know, for $30,000. Land, land included, right? That was the average price. Now the average price is somewhere in the neighborhood of $400,000. So you look at it and go, man. So let's, let's take that out and let's go a little bit further out in the future and say, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is you can be in pretty big trouble if you don't have a little bit of both. And this diversification that I always talk about is so important, not only for the reason of protecting against downside risk with stocks, but it's also making sure that we have protection against inflation. And that is why, and, and if, if these guys are right, big deal. Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and financial planning tax laws constantly changing and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area, but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area and everything we do is fee only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get an initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it. Every one of the offices is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degreed planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon. I was talking about this a little bit earlier and expectations versus reality with index funds. I found this other article that was written. It was this is based on the name. One might expect the small cap Russell 2000 index primarily to hold stocks of smaller than the thousand largest stocks in the U.S. market. And that's what it is. If you think about what the index is. 
when we talk about indexes and common indexes, how do we track markets? And, and when, what if I buy an index that fund that's a small cap index fund? You have, there's over 3,000 stocks in the U.S. markets to choose from. Uh, more, much more in international markets. But let's just take the U.S. market and we have the Russell 3000, you know, or you'll have the biggest 3000 companies. The thousand biggest is going to be the Russell 1000. Those are the, roughly the biggest companies. The next 2000 or the 2000 smallest would be the Russell 2000. Says, however, expectations may diverge from reality. This is uh, from Dimensional writing this. Um, they're a, uh, they're, they do a ton of research over there. Uh, it says the reality because of the active index construction decisions made by the Russell, by Russell, that's the indexer. I mean, every time you hear like S&P 500 or the word index, I mean, it, somebody puts that index together. Somebody decides what companies are in that index. S&P, Standard & Poor's, they determine what stocks make up the S&P 500. Wilshire is another indexing company. Uh, you got MSCI, that is another indexing, like you'll see MSCI International, IFA, Europe, Australia, Far East, or you might see MSCI Emerging Markets or something like that. They're all indexers. So you have different companies that put together these indexes and they charge money for you to use the name. Because why? It's marketing. When you look out there in the index world, you will find, well, I want an index. I want a fund that tracks, you know, and people know these indexes. They've heard of them. I know the S&P 500. I've heard of that a million times. So companies, mutual fund companies will pay money to use that name in their advertising that we've got an S&P 500 fund because nobody, you don't have to, it's like going to McDonald's. I know what I'm going to get when I go to McDonald's in Goodlessville versus what if I go down to Nashville? What if I go to Cool Springs? What if I go to Toledo, Ohio? I, I know what I'm going to get. I know what it's going to be. Well, it's the same thing when you buy an S&P 500 index fund. I know what I'm going to get, whether it be Vanguard, whether it be Fidelity, whether it be, you know, whoever, um, you know, whether it be BlackRock or, you know, something like that, iShares or, or whatever. You know, so that's why these companies will do that. They'll buy that right to use the index name. Well, what they're saying here is that the the construction decisions made by the Russell are, you know, they're deciding what's in there. In an effort to cater to an increasingly large base of tracking funds, like I was saying, you got companies that track it, the index provider has incorporated a series of methodology adjustments. Now, why is this important to you? Well, what has happened is they're trying to minimize turnover so they don't have to do so much trading. Because you may hear about turnover when you listen to people talking about how do you keep expenses low. Turnover is how often the stocks are traded. If I have 100% turnover, that means that 100% of the portfolio is traded in the last calendar year. And what they're saying here is that the changes have been appeared to have been reduced by these changes in methodology. The Russell 2000's turnover came from 29.8%, which is almost a third of the portfolio, from 1996 through 2005 to 11% since 2006. And you go, oh, good. This is good, isn't it? Turnovers come down. Management fees are low. Turnovers low. <gasps> What's not to like about all this stuff? 
Well, what happened is they found that the Russell's changes likely help facilitating tracking the index. In other words, the indices are easily more easily tracked because you don't have to do as many trades. Uh, but they come potentially with an expense of lower expected returns. So the thing that you invest for returns and style drift means you're not even holding the index as well as you think you are end up getting hurt by it. Unintended consequences come in a lot of flavors, don't they? So you change one thing, you mess up something else. And that's just another reason that I'm just not a huge fan of indexing portfolios in some areas of the market. Large U.S. stocks, large international fine. Other areas, not so much. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. If you want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there. And if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.